Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back with Yusip Roine. What's up? All good here. I have been going to the gym uh, lately, uh, so I try to do three visits per week to the gym and, and a bit of bicycling on the side. And I did learn a new thing yesterday, actually. I went to the gym, and what I always do, I have my Garmin smartwatch which, uh, with me, which measures all sorts of sensors. And one of those sensors is the external heart rate belt from Garmin as well. So I use that for running, for cycling, and also for gym. And one of the things I now do at the gym requires me to use the, the added supports on, on your wrists. And in order to put those supports on, I need to remove my watch, which shouldn't be a problem because I am wireless and I'm using an external heart rate belt. So I remove my watch, put it on the bench, do my thing, I stop working out, hit the lockers, and I often check the statistics, like what was my heart rate and, and how many calories I apparently burned. And the watch tells me that, oh, I couldn't get your HR, so perhaps you didn't work out at all. And I'm like, mm, hold on, I do have this fairly nice and expensive heart rate belt. Are you not talking to that now? And then it hits me, when you do strength training with the Garmin, it doesn't utilize the external heart rate belt. So I've been wearing the belt now for eight months. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it hasn't utilized any of the data from there. It simply gets the optical heart rate from the wrist. All right. And now you noticed. Now I know. So today <laughs> I'm doing the gym as well. And I am not bringing the belt anymore. Should apply chaos engineering, man, that we talked about in the previous episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps some testing or even reading the manual. But who has time for those? Yeah, exactly. And how are you? So for me, it's good. I've also been working out a bit. Um, this week, I got back on the road on the bike and did 100 kilometers. And I, wow. funnily enough, I also use Garmin and I also have an HR belt. Um, but mine works when I use it with my bike so I can get a pretty detailed uh, data. And I actually, I, I like this data um, and I use it for, uh, for having the system tell me speed up or slow down because I will, I will tell the system, I'm gonna go for, a, this is not for distance, this is for workout, I wanna burn. And then it says, then you're gonna stay on 60% of your maximum heart rate for mm -hmm. this amount of time, you know, hit the open road. And I do that and then I can measure it and it will tell me, you need to speed up, man, it's, you're a bit slow or uh-oh, now you're spending too much energy, you need to slow down. Um, and it does that with the cadence sensor on the bike, uh, which is also connected to this Bluetooth, um, device thing that I have for Garmin and then connected also with the HR belts to understand, you know, am I getting exhausted too early or not? So it's actually pretty cool to get all that data. Uh, and I hope you can enjoy that data when you figure your issues out. I, I hope so too. So you did 100 kilometers. Did yeah. you do that in one day, in, in one session? Or? No, I, I did that over three sessions because I am trying to find time to actually get out on the bike and having, yep. a, having a family and kids at home and, and this, you know, it's, and in combination with an okay weather to actually jump on the bike, it's not easy to find. 
So whenever there's a, a gap in the schedule, I take it down from the wall, I suit up and I go. And usually this is about an hour and a half or two hours. And then I'm back and, you know, showering, eating lunch or whatever, all these things needs to be combined. So otherwise I might go for longer rides, but right now, you know, if I do it on a weekday, three, 30 kilometers, 40 kilometers, thereabouts is kind of the limit that I need to be back. That's still very impressive. I did 25 K two days ago, and that was one of the first rides I did this year because the weather is finally good. And, and I wanted to try my Garmin and my, and my heart rate belt. <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, uh, today's episode, remote development with Visual Studio Code. And perhaps we start with, with kind of having a quick look at the different capabilities and options we have usually available for, for developers and of course for IT pros and architects as well. So the development environments, I mostly use Windows myself uh, on all of my laptops and most of the work I do, I do on my workstation at home, which is a Windows 10. And then I have a couple of Raspberry Pis, they are on Linux. But that, that's mostly it. Toby, do, do you have the same sort of angles or are you using something else? So for dev environments, I am all in on Windows. I have been a Windows user ah, since Windows 3.1, I believe. So uh, there's no reason for me to do anything else because I know that. So I'm, I'm pretty much only a Windows user. Um, and I have VMs on Windows and I have my local laptops, which is also Windows. I also have Linux and I have Linux distributions running both in the cloud, in containers and in my Raspberry Pis as well. But I don't consider them to be my dev environment. Dev environment for me, that's on Windows. Okay. And then, of course, one of the options would be Mac OS, or was it called OS X before? And now it's called Mac OS. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a MacBook Air for a couple of years, and I did get that on the side to sort of get into the whole Apple Mac ecosystem and try to understand what's, what's the whole thing in there. But I couldn't integrate that to my workflow. So I, I couldn't really get so used to Mac OS that I would prefer to use that instead of a Windows or a Linux. So these three options we usually have, and, and then you would run your workloads in a virtual machine locally or in the cloud, or then you have a local workstation or a local laptop. Uh, do you mostly have a local laptop that you do most of your work with, or do you have like a separate on-premises setup with all the fancy servers and Active Directory and everything else? No, I haven't had that for a long time. I think, well, almost 10 years. Um, so right now I, I have a local setup. I have all the tools I need installed on my Ultrabook. So I carry a very lightweight laptop. This is a Dell XPS 13 inch. It's very performant, um, 16 gigs of RAM, and that's it. I have Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, like all the dev tools, also, all my infrastructure and monitoring tools, everything goes on that one. But I also have a VM with the pretty much the same setup and the same account that is a fallback. So if my actual device is faulty or gets into a hardware failure, I still have my tools available. It's a bit cumbersome because I need to maintain two environments, but the one in the cloud is pretty much just sitting there ready with all the tools and I never really use it. Uh, more as a backup. If something urgently needs my attention and my device would fail, I can jump into that one and pick it up fairly quickly. 
Okay, I run a couple of VMs, uh, a couple of Ubuntu Linuxes, and a couple of Windows Server 2019s locally on Hyper-V on the workstation, which is sort of a server for me. Uh, I, I also provisioned a couple of VMs in Azure in anticipation that I would get rid of the local servers, the local hardware mostly, and just rely on my laptop. But I often find myself still preferring the zero latency with the local Hyper-V. There's, there's no wait for anything. And you can have as much RAM as, as you can physically afford. So yeah. one of the challenges for devs is often that they, they claim or they say they don't have enough RAM to run everything, run multiple copies of Visual Studio, run containers locally, run SQL Server in a VM, all, all these sort of things. And now when Surface Book 3 was announced in May, it has an option for 32 gigs of RAM. And I saw many people on Twitter say, finally, it's here. Finally, we can have 32 gigs of RAM. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, I had 64 eight years ago on my laptop. But yeah. obviously, it wasn't really a sleek laptop like Surface Book 3 is. It was more, more like a workstation that kind of looked like a laptop, but you didn't really, really want to bring yeah, it. Yeah, it doesn't really compare to the Ultrabooks of today. Yeah, uh, but I, I noticed the same. A lot of people uh, claiming that you know, 32 gigs of RAM in an ultra or a slim laptop is finally here. This is the awesome uh, thing I've been waiting for. Personally, because I don't work with virtual machines anymore, I don't get it. I've been on 16 gigs of RAM for I don't know six, seven years at least. Before that, I had big VMs on my local machine, and then I needed a lot more RAM. Now, running you know barebone with um, whatever tools I need, I only need 16. And I don't run 20 instances of Visual Studio. I do have three or four open at the same time and I, I do different things. That's perfectly fine. And, you know, the, the inner geek in me back in the day would say, well, if there's available 32, you should get it because reasons. But I'm, I'm more of a realist now and really, I don't need it. I work perfectly fine and I'm very productive at what I do with 16 gigs. I'm happy with that. I had to open Task Manager on my local workstation. So this is running Hyper-V with maybe four VMs running now. Also Docker desktop for, for development with containers. A couple of Visual Studios open and all the usual things like Teams client, Slack client, OneNote, plenty of Edge, Zoom tabs open. And I am now at 19 gigs of RAM utilized. Wow. Out of out of sixty four on the workstation, and I just I, took a look. I'm, I'm yeah. at fifty four percent, and I still have my Visual Studios and Teams and everything in the background as well. And I think I've never really hit the ceiling, uh, but what I do hit frequently is something like Outlook telling me that there's not enough memory to work on something, and I think that's a process limitation, not the physical limitation of of available memory. Yeah. So now we have the capability of, of having laptops and workstations with plenty of RAM and they, they are quite affordable. Uh, so then we also have Windows subsystem for Linux and version two came out also just recently. And it allows you to run a local Linux distribution that is sort of managed through a Hyper-V VM on a hypervisor, but the whole setup requires Windows 10 with the 2004 update or the sort of May 2020 update that not many people have deployed yet. Have you played at all with Windows Subsystem for Linux? 
I, I will not pretend that I have. I've seen the announcements. I've briefly scraped on the surface, but I've not really done anything. I, I don't have it in my arsenal of tools. So what, what, is, uh, what would you say are the key features of that? Why would I want to have that? I think it, it aligns fairly closely with the features of if you have a MacBook and you often want to work with your code, let's say you do things on Node.js, so you prefer to have a Linux shell, a real terminal, as opposed to having a command prompt or PowerShell. So WSL2 now allows you to run your preferred Linux distribution side by side within your Windows 10. Right. So you can have all your scripts, your, your tool change, your deployment things in there, but you can still access all the content you have on the Windows 10 side. So it's not like it's a VM totally separate, it is more of, of, a, of a simulated setup for Linux that gets access to Windows 10 resources. Right, gotcha. So I'm running it, but I admit that I'm not often having it open, even though it's, it's running in the background. So now when we think of remote development, then uh, many people might run a local Linux or they might run Linux or Mac OS or Windows and they need to do development against a remote system. And something that Microsoft came out also fairly recently is Visual Studio Code Spaces, and then we also have GitHub Code Spaces. And these two are very interesting, but at the time, they are only available through a private preview. So I think there's, there's not much point in discussing this just yet because there's nothing we can really share. So when these are more publicly available, let's definitely focus on all of the code spaces things. And in a nutshell, the code spaces allow you to spin up, uh, I think it's container-based development environment in the cloud so that you can open a web browser and it runs a sort of Visual Studio code in the browser while retaining all of your settings in the cloud. Yeah, and I, I think you can also connect to that from Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. Yeah. So you can spin it up and, and you don't have to have the web browser there. You can connect directly using the tools to that instance, uh, to that machine uh, in the cloud. And now the other alternative, if we, if we now bypass the Visual Studio Code space and the GitHub Code space for now, is using Visual Studio Code and that's free. So you, you can just download that. And it now has the capability for doing remote development and the only, only requirement really is that the remote machine against which you want to do remote development needs to support SSH, which I, I think is a fair requirement. And the support includes uh, remote development for any machine that can do SSH, can, can expose an SSH server, also for containers and Windows subsystem for Linux. Right. So it's a, so it's a way to um, let Visual Studio Code know that you want to connect to a remote environment over SSH and utilize the resources of that environment for building and launching whatever it is. And then you use your local laptop for the actual writing of the code and seeing the results in the browser, for example. Yes. And I've spent so many days doing an SSH from the command prompt to a Raspberry Pi or a Linux box, opening a local file from that remote machine in Nano editing the file just slightly, saving it, exiting Nano, running something remotely, but 
while locally connected to that remote machine, seeing it still fails, opening nano again and modifying something a little bit. It's, it's very analog and it's super slow. So now with Visual Studio Code, what I need is the remote development extension pack. So it's an extension to VS Code, which you can find when you click on extensions and you do a search for remote. And once you install that, you get to create SSH tunnels to your remote machines. So what I did initially when I realized this is a capability now, I created an SSH tunnel to one of my Raspberry Pis I have locally. And it asks for my username and my password. It then opens an SSH tunnel between my workstation and the Pi. And from there, it maps the files so that they seem local to me. So any of the Python files I have on, on, on the IoT device, I get to open in Visual Studio Code as if they would be local files. But it also opens up a terminal within the same view in VS Code. So I can use VS Code to edit those files. And if I want to run them, I can use the terminal to run whatever commands I like. And right, it so runs you get them. terminal access to the destination. Yes. Okay. And it runs those remotely then. So yep. I don't have to fiddle back and forth. I can actually do everything in VS Code now, as I could do for working in Azure with Azure Cloud Cell and VS Code. So do you know if there's certificates and stuff like this over the uh, ESL transmissions happening? Or how, how do you, is that self-signed certificates? Or how, how do you know that, how that works um, to get so that you up can, you can, you can use the SSH identity files, the key files. Uh, they are the files with the PEM extension. Mm -hmm. So you can generate those yourself. And if you spin up a VM in Azure, uh, you can choose to have those generated for you. Gotcha. And once you have this identity file, what's interesting, though, is that if you SSH to a remote box and you offer the identity file from a local directory, that is not properly secured, meaning everyone in the local Windows box has access to the file. SSH will actually slap you on the fingers and say, I cannot accept this file because it's not secured well enough. Right, that's a good thing. So in order to use the identity file, you have to generate one, and then uh, you need to store it securely, and then you need to offer that file through the remote development extension pack. So you need to open the configuration file within the extension and add one line specifying where do you have the identity file. And from there, you can choose any of the predefined remote hosts, connect, and it won't prompt you for a password. So kind of to, to recap that a little bit is, Visual Studio Code is great now with this extension because you can offload the resources from your own computer to the cloud or to a remote box, even a box in your own room if you have it on your own network, um, as long as it's capable of tunneling up SSH and you can create your own PEM file or use a username and password. You connect to the box and you let Visual Studio do the heavy lifting on that remote device or machine, and you don't have to do the, the heavy lifting on your own laptop. That yes. sums it up? Yep. And I've always struggled, especially in recent years, on what parameters did I need to put to SSH because I keep forgetting them. Then I Google them again and figure that I need to do a script on this at some point. But now VS Code does that for me automatically. And it also allows me now to use the other extensions in VS Code to edit any of those files through this uh, remote connectivity through SSH. That's very cool. 
And, yeah. and I like this concept because it's, so it's essentially what they did with Visual Studio Code Spaces and GitHub Code Spaces, which is something I think we can talk about in a, in a future episode. Uh, so it's pretty much that, but you can wire it up yourself, right? So maybe yeah. you don't get the full integration with everything that comes in, a, in the Visual Studio Code Spaces or GitHub Code Spaces, but you get the uploading of whatever you are doing onto a remote device, whether that is in your network or the cloud. Yeah, and I did also learn a neat trick that when you have VS Code open, you press F1 to activate the search toolbar and you just type remote in there. And it, if you have the extension uh, installed, it will automatically give you the different options, SSH, containers, Windows subsystem for Linux. If you don't have the extension, then it will probably offer you one of those as, as, as the main choice. All right, uh, I like it. Yep, and I also did a blog post on this, so I will be sure to put that in the show notes if you want to see the screenshots and the details on, on specifying the identity file. Alrighty, I think that's all we have on remote development with Visual Studio Code. Uh, thanks for joining, and until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.